Good evening, listeners. It's January 22nd, 7 p.m. You're tuned into 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It is currently just after 7 p.m. on Sunday. That can only mean one thing. Dun, 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 dun. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Kristen Finch. And I'm Mackenzie Smith. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out more about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration, where you can find out all about our up and coming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. Inspiration dissemination is recorded live. And should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests, not necessarily representative of Oregon State University or this station. Tonight, we are joined by Zoltan, pa- Zoltan Bear of Department of Botany and Plant Pathology. Hey, Zoltan, how's it going? Doing well. Thanks for having me. And can you tell us uh, who your major advisor is? So my major professor is Dr. Jeff Stone. And what is your program? So are you going for a PhD or a master's? So I am currently finishing up my PhD, uh, as you said, in the Department of Botany and Plant Pathology. Great. So I guess we can start by just hearing a little bit about your research. So I study plant pathogens. So in the same way that humans might get sick, plants can get sick as well. And I study a particular tree called the whitebark pine. And that tree occupies the highest elevation territory, um, not only in the Cascade Range, but also around the Rockies and the greater Yellowstone area. And it's a pretty unique tree, but unfortunately, it's been afflicted by a variety of different things, uh, one of which is the mountain pine beetle, and another is a fungus that actually originated in Asia that causes a disease called white pine blister rust. And so that's been really detrimental to a lot of the white pine populations throughout North America, and uh, particularly to white bark pine. Cool. And so uh, how are you studying this pathogen in the tree as well? So the goal of my research is to use next generation sequencing technology, specifically RNA-seq, in order to determine what genes are expressed in resistant white bark pines that might not be expressed in the susceptible ones. So we're basically trying to figure out a way uh, to breed resistance into these populations so that we can restore them back into the environment. And so if a tree is resistant, they will have a better fighting chance against white pine blister rust? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, So there's actually a couple different types of plant disease resistance, uh, one of which could be termed effector-triggered immunity. And an effector is uh, some kind of compound that a fungus might use. So most commonly, they're these small secreted proteins, and they're basically used by the fungus to gain access to the host cell uh, in the plant. But plants, of course, have been able to evolve receptors that can sense the presence of those effectors and then kind of trigger an immunity response. Uh, In four other white pine species out here, we've actually identified a single gene that seems to be responsible for that defense response. So it's pretty easy um, to get breeding lines going that are resistant to the fungus. However, in my tree, white bark pine, we haven't really been able to find any major gene resistance. So I'm using a strategy of looking into which genes are being expressed 
to try to determine um, perhaps how the resistance response is being mounted, but also to identify genes and uh, use markers to assist breeding efforts into the future. Great. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about the white bark pine? Uh, where does it grow? What's unique about it? Yeah, so the white bark pine is a really interesting species. Um, and it it's really characterized by a, a gnarly growth appearance. Um, it's called crumholtz or, or crooked wood. But you find these things at the highest elevation sites, so uh, subalpine environments um, at or above treeline even. And they're, they're a really uh, hardy pioneer species that kind of can get established um, in niches where other trees might not be able to, to get going. So it has a real competitive advantage there, although um, there's some evidence that suggests that it's also used to be a, a predominant component of the mid-elevation forest environments. It's really uh, defined by its high elevation. What elevation does it grow at, or what's the range? Um, so I don't want to get into absolute numbers because mm -hmm. it does depend on which mm -hmm. environment. Mm -hmm. um, but generally, it's going to be higher than the surrounding tree line. So uh, tree line is basically, you know, if you're looking at a mountain, you, you can kind of see there, there usually is a distinct zone where the forested area stops um, and the alpine area begins. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's generally around that margin. Mm -hmm. And there's a cool mutualism that's uh, associated with this species. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so the white bark pine is the only North American stone pine. And I think there's five stone pines in the world, but they're characterized by having these really large wingless seeds. Um, so very often pine seeds will kind of float down and, and can get spread by the wind. But in this case, they're in a, a dense cone that has to be broken open. And so this stone pine has co-evolved a mutualism with a bird called the Clark's Nutcracker named after Lewis and Clark. And it's a, it's a type of corvid, so it kind of looks like a J, but some of these birds can consume and cache up to 100,000 seeds in a single season. So they basically break their way into these cones, um, take a bunch of seeds, and then go plant them around in surrounding areas, sometimes up to kilometers away. So they, they cache them for themselves for the winter, but of course they also end up getting raided by rodents and secondarily spread or even by bears. Um, but it's a pretty unique co-evolved mutualism. Wow. It sounds like the birds are more productive than I am. <laughs> and so I'm thinking like a silly squirrel's planting or like caching acorns, but it doesn't necessarily remember where it put them. And so that's how the white pine really depends on this bird in a way to be planted. Yeah, that's, that's for sure. Um, it does depend on them to not only gain access to those seeds, but then to spread them around and to plant them in an area where they might grow. It, you'd be surprised at, at the accuracy uh, at which they can remember all of these different caches all over the surrounding environment. But, of course, they do end up forgetting some. And they're usually um, stored, you know, maybe 10 or 12 in a hole or something like that. So very often when these things do germinate, um, there's some evidence to suggest that a lot of the trees that we see are chimeras. So they're actually several individuals that have grown into kind of one trunk structure from these same holes. 
Very cool. Uh, I'm so you really though are interested. That's a that's an awesome ecological interaction. But you're interested in a different interaction, which is between this plant and this pathogen, white pine blisterus. Can you tell us a little bit more about the history of that pathogen? Well, I don't want to be too nitpicky here, but <laughs> uh, in plant pathology, we talk about the pathogen, which is the causal agent or organism of that causes a disease in a plant. And so, in this case, it's a fungus called Cronarchium rubicola. Um, and the disease that it causes in the tree is white pine blister rust. I see. Yeah. Uh, so one of the interesting things about plant pathology is a lot of the problems that we deal with are the result of globalized trade. So we're moving, uh, very often it's moving live seedlings or maybe even just moving wood in between states or in between countries, in between continents. And what ends up happening is you move around pests and pathogens so uh, often people think of insects as good examples, but there's a lot of fungi that have caused major um, tree disease epidemics that have wiped out entire forest ecosystems in our recent history. So one of the best examples is probably the chestnut blight. And that was caused by a fungus that came from Asia and was imported on a Chinese or Japanese chestnut and made its way over to the close relative American chestnut, which used to be the most dominant forest species um, and provider of food throughout the Appalachian Mountains and quickly wiped out the entire population. And it's very rare to find uh, an old American chestnut nowadays. Well, the same thing actually happened with the white pines. So there are other pine species in Eurasia that have kind of co-evolved with this fungal pathogen. And so they've actually been able to develop some type of um, long-term, like durable resistance against the pathogen. But once it was brought over here on seedlings, it quickly um, spread throughout its alternate hosts and then back onto the pine trees and wiped out huge swaths of eastern white pine, western white pine, uh, sugar pine, all kind of commercially important species. But of course, it also has uh, had a major effect on white bark pine and kind of has brought it to a point of being extremely vulnerable, if not endangered. Wow. Okay. And so you said, when, when did this happen? Early? How long ago? So there's actually been some interesting forensics into this. And it's, it appears that there were several introduction events um, on the East Coast and also another one uh, in Western North America. But it's kind of traced back to uh, an area around Geneva, New York in the early 1900s. And so another interesting thing about these rust pathogens, specifically the one that causes white pine blister rust, is it's extremely complex and it has uh, five different stages in its life cycle and five different uh, reproductive structures. But it also has two separate stages of the cycle where one, it's on pine, and then the other one, it jumps over to ribes species. So these are things like currants and gooseberries. And so that's where it was initially observed. And then shortly thereafter, it was observed on the pine trees themselves. So to control this pathogen, why can't we just go out and wipe out all the ribes species? Well, believe it or not, there was a, a real concerted effort to do that. And actually in the past, uh, there was another agricultural rust that affected wheat that alternated on barberry. And so there were huge barberry eradication efforts um, in which you know, young boys and men would go around and 
kill these plants and they'd get a bounty for each one that they killed. And it was actually an effective strategy. Unfortunately, in the case of Ribes, the eradication efforts didn't work, um, despite having gone around to, you know, individual homeowners and people who had agricultural plots and making them eradicate everything. Uh, they're an annual plant and they keep popping up throughout forested environments. And in some cases, these spores can spread hundreds of kilometers in a single dispersal event. So it's pretty hard to, uh, to maintain a control on that. So tell us a little bit more about your approach to studying this pathogen. So historically, there's a lot of, um, I shouldn't say a lot, there's a few sites that the U.S. Forest Service operates where they have operational uh, resistance breeding programs. And so they'll go out into the environment and they'll find all of these different seeds from different families of uh, wild populations that appear to have some natural resistance. And so then they'll grow up these seedlings and then they'll intentionally infect them with the disease and see which ones survive. And then they'll breed those ones, right? So usually in the case of major gene resistance, you can see that it appears to be a single dominant gene based on the ratios of the progeny that are created and how many of those are actually resistant. In the case of white bark pine, that didn't work. And so we chose to use uh, bioinformatics or, or sequencing in order to determine what was happening at the molecular level in trees that were resistant. So this, uh, the, the formation of my experiment, we couldn't really assemble a genome effectively for pine trees because they're massive and they're hugely repetitive. And I don't want to get too deep into the nitty gritty of how this works, but, um, just in the last year or so, some collaborators of mine have published the sugar pine genome, which is upwards of 30 billion base pairs. So just to give you an idea, the human genome is about 3 billion base pairs. So it's an order of magnitude difference. And it's mostly because there's just these repetitive sequences. I'm not going to get too deep into it. So rather than try to assemble a genome, we decided to look at the transcriptome level. So instead of the DNA or what genes are in the nucleus and the plant, we're looking at which of those genes are being transcribed or expressed into RNA, because those are the ones that are actually end up uh, being translated into a protein or an enzyme that actually does kind of the cellular work. Okay, so it's not like an easy fix like Gregor Mendel with his pea plants, and he's got like a green one and a yellow one, and he gets three green ones and one yellow one. It's much more complex than that. Yeah, so the, the, that was basically the strategy, like looking at Mendelian genetic segregation ratios was the, the strategy that worked when there was a, a single major gene responsible for the resistance. And in that case, um, generally, the plant recognizes that an infection is about to happen based on recognizing a particular effector of that fungus, and then it just shuts it down uh, with what's called a hypersensitive response, which is basically killing the surrounding area uh, where the fungus is trying to spread so that it can no longer spread. In the case of white bark pine, it seems that the ones that do well and survive have a more durable type of resistance, um, or polygenic is another way of referring to it, where there's several genes that might be responsible for conferring resistance. And it basically is just a, 
a stronger, more robust tree that can fight off infection rather than shutting it down immediately with a hypersensitive response. Very cool. So uh, we're about halfway through, but I want to remind the listeners, you're listening to Inspiration Dissemination on KBVR Corvallis, and we are joined by our guest, Zoltan Baer from the Department of Botany and Plant Pathology. And Zoltan, can you just remind the listeners uh, what we're talking about? So we've been talking about my research, studying the nature of white pine blister rust resistance in white bark pine by using transcriptomics. Very cool. And so we just heard a bunch about your research, but I want to know how did you end up becoming interested in science or in bot or in plant pathology specifically? Well, I've always been interested in science. So let's talk about plant pathology specifically. <laughs> um, I had a couple interesting experiences with fungi and mushrooms growing up and became really interested in mycology kind of just as a hobby. So I was in Virginia and very few people are familiar with fungi on any level uh, out east, certainly compared to the Pacific Northwest. And so it used to be a hobby of mine to basically go around and have a, a little Easter egg hunt, which is a mushroom hunt, right? You're looking around and every once in a while you, you find something and it's real cool. And then I would identify the mushrooms and take pictures of them. And it was just kind of a, a hobby of mine that went well with hiking and backpacking and things like that. So flash forward, I was at Virginia Tech to get a bachelor's in psychology and um, quickly realized that my scope of interest went a little bit outside of there. So I also did a, a separate degree bachelor's in biology and a minor in chemistry. And while I was taking electives to fulfill all those requirements, I came across a course called, I believe it was Magical Mushrooms, Mis Mischievous Molds or Mysterious Mushrooms, Mysterious, something like that, right? <laughs> and so that really piqued my interest because there were very few classes even like that. And so signed up for it, got into the class and decided I was going to make a point to familiarize myself with the professor and sat in the front row and did well on tests and basically made it clear to him that whatever he was doing, I wanted to do. Great. So um, thinking about how did you transition then from being an undergraduate student who was really interested in this to pursuing graduate studies in the field? So in that class, uh, there was an opportunity that had come up for an undergraduate scholarship type program. And I became familiar with the professor through that. And he ended up offering me a job in his lab. And like many other people who end up doing graduate work, you start working as an undergrad in a lab, often just doing dishes or uh, pouring Petri plates or, you know, those types of basic things. But then I got to be an undergraduate TA for that same course. I also had a uh, undergrad research project where I studied the causal agent of the Irish potato famine, um, potato late blight. And so our lab did a lot of work with potato late blight in assessing how spores would get spread from field to field, long distance. So we actually got to use unmanned aerial vehicles with these cool Petri dishes that would open up in the air. We also did uh, mycotoxin testing and a couple other um, projects just related to plant pathology and studying fungi as pathogens of agricultural crops and forest trees. So what do you mean by an unmanned aerial vehicle? 
Like, what are, what are you talking about? So, I mean, some people might call them drones, but this was back before you could buy a drone on Amazon. Um, <laughs> and these guys actually had to have, like, pilot's licenses through the FAA, but they're probably, I don't know, like a 8, 10-foot wingspan um, aircraft, you know, that there was obviously no man on them. But they were being controlled from the ground, but they also had autopilot. Um, so once you get it up in the air and, and now, of course, you know, we used to fly them just straight off the grass. But now they've they've came into a little more money in that lab and they've been doing really well for themselves in the. Uh, oh, Dr. David Schmally. Let me drop that name real quick. <laughs> um, so now they actually have a paved runway and all that stuff. But very cool. And so from doing your undergraduate work. Did that kind of get you introduced to research and that's how you decided that maybe this is something that you wanted to do? Yeah, I became fascinated by it and I uh, I worked in the lab just for, for money, but I also did it for research credit and I, I worked as the, um, the undergrad uh, wage slave, I guess you would call it, <laughs> for, um, for the other graduate students who were doing their projects. And so I just got a lot of exposure to different molecular biology techniques and uh, that kind of was how I transitioned from being interested in fungi simply as forest mushrooms into uh, my interest of them as plant pathogens, which is really where the money is in our field. So then how did you come to end up at OSU? Well, believe it or not, this was the only graduate program that I applied to. And when I came out here for our recruitment weekend, I just really fell in love immediately. I, I knew that I would like Oregon, um, because as a mycology buff, you know, the Pacific Northwest rainforest environment, like this is where it all happens. And this is where I can actually, you know, go out and people know what mushroom hunting is. Yeah. This is where the mushrooms are. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So honestly, I, I kind of followed the fungi, but a lot of it just boiled down to going on Google and looking up mycology programs and finding places where I knew I didn't want to go. And I came here and I, I was sold on it immediately just by the, um, the community in the department and they took us out to silver falls and they were telling me about every lichen and mushroom. And I, I just, I knew these are uh, fellow plant nerds. These are my people. <laughs> and so, uh, how did you decide on Jeff Stone's lab or did you have kind of more of a, I don't know, uh, umbrella program at first? Yeah. Most people actually come to our department with a particular professor in mind. Um, and I, I was not one of those people. I came, I got the offer and came out and did a rotation. So I had opportunities in three different labs during the first year and uh, actually ended up staying with Jeff on this project, which I had started, you know, maybe a week after moving out here cross country. Very cool. And um, this is always the most uh, dreadful question <gasps> that we, at, we ask graduate <laughs> students, but what do you think is going to happen after this? So you're about to, you're all but dissertation. So you're going to be done here pretty soon at Oregon State, unfortunately. Right. And uh, what is, what's next? So I'm looking to uh, kind of take all of these things that I've learned at the university about plant pathology and translate those into a new burgeoning industry in Oregon. Uh, the cannabis industry. So cannabis as, as marijuana or as hemp um, for fuel or fiber or oil. Uh, I, I really think that industry is lacking in hard science. Um, and there's a lot of 
vestige. Uh, there's a lot of. I don't. I don't want to denigrate the people who are involved in this industry, right? But there's a lot of um, people haven't been employing the the modern technologies and the modern tools, and um, yeah. We'll so maybe there's that. some like traditional methods that were not well researched just because of the nature of the industry before it's been regulated by the state. Certainly, when it when it was illegal. Um, and you know, there's all these people doing underground grows and there's, there's nobody communicating about what are the most, um, cutting edge techniques and, and bioinformatic tools that could be leveraged in order to better identify certain plants or to prevent the use of certain pesticides. I think that that's a, a really interesting and unique opportunity at this stage in the, um, the legalization project. For me to gain a foothold in. So ideally, what what kind of role would you seek in the industry? So for for other agricultural crops, there's uh, crop consultants basically, mm-hmm. and these are people who will uh, visit farmers or growers and help assess what their management problems might be. So very often, it's I have a particular issue with this pest or this pathogen, or there's a nutrient deficiency, um, and I had a really interesting experience this summer with a plant disease diagnosis course offered here where we basically traveled all around Oregon and saw all of these different agricultural operations and everybody has their own unique problems, Mm -hmm. but they all can be solved with the same basic framework of knowledge. And that's the type of uh, education that I've been fortunate to have received here at the Department of Botany and Plant Pathology. So we have a couple of traditions here yep. at Inspiration Dissemination, the first of which is we like to ask our guests for advice. This could be advice that you might offer to students, potential graduate students in your field or life advice or general advice. So what kind of advice do you have for us? Well, I guess for graduate students in particular, um, this is certainly not the the path that I followed, but in hindsight, I think the the best advice to give would would be to to really know why you want to go to grad school. Don't just go because you finished high school and then you finished undergrad and then grad school is the next logical extension of that that process. You got to really know why you want to continue your education and take it seriously and how you might be able to leverage um, that degree but that education that you've received into something that's actually useful to society and, you know, to your community um, and to your own job prospects, really. So if you are interested in pursuing some type of graduate research, you should really um, start to nail down what interests you, like what are you passionate about, but also what's useful. And if you do start to seek out a program, uh, I would say that, your, your research interest is the most important factor, um, but your, your major professor is also a very important factor. So they will also, there will be your advisor, but if you can find somebody who's likely to be a mentor to you, who also has the same interests in your research, um, that's really the optimal situation. And then of course the department is important, you know, the college, the university level is important, but what's most important is finding a research professor uh, with whom you really mesh well. Great. And then our, uh, that's great advice. Our second tradition, though, is to ask you for a song that will maybe 
maybe or maybe not describe something about yourself or your research. Uh, and so what song did you request for us and why? So while I was out with this plant disease diagnosis class over the summer, uh, we had a couple opportunities to camp out overnight because we were out visiting Eastern Oregon and, uh, the professor put on some tunes and as it turns out, it was a, uh, I don't know, kind of a cover band, but also more of a parody band, I guess you would call them. So the father of plant pathology is a man named Anton DeBerry. And he's been called the father of microbiology or plant pathology or mycology or whatever, but he identified the causal agent behind the Irish potato famine. And there's a group called the American Phytopathological Society, which meets annually. And I guess a bunch of uh, plant pathologists there decided to get together and make a band. So they call themselves the DeBerry Tones. <laughs> and they have a collection of songs, which are, uh, I guess, parodies of well-known numbers. And so this one is called Phytophthora, which is the genus of the uh, organism that caused that disease. And I believe it's to... It's the to the house, of the, the house of the Rising the Sun. The House of the Rising by Sun. By the Eels. <laughs> I, I, think. I, I think the uh, right? <laughs> the original authorship is unknown, but many, many, many groups have, have covered it. So Yes. So um, anyway, uh, Zoltan, our guest, thank you very much uh, for being on Inspiration Dissemination. And we wish, wish you the best of luck with finishing your dissertation as well as future and beyond. Thank you guys very much. This is a great program. Keep it rolling. Definitely. And here is Phytophthora, House of the Rising OO Spore, Da Berry Tones. Request by Zoltan Bear. To remind our listeners, this is Inspiration Dissemination, and we are on every Sunday at 7 p.m. So tune in to KBVR Corvallis. Thank you very much.